Hi, I'm Matt Thompson, executive editor of The Atlantic. With me in the studio is my co-host. Jeff Goldberg. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. And on the phone, we have Mark Bowden, whose cover story in our July-August issue, How to Deal with North Korea, has just gotten pushed right back into the conversation by recent events. Hi, Mark. Good morning. So to very quickly recap some of what pushed your great cover story back into the forefront of U.S. anxiety, the Washington Post reported on Tuesday on an intelligence assessment from late July indicating that the, that the country has successfully produced a miniaturized nuclear warhead that can fit inside its missiles. A prior intelligence assessment, the Post reported, estimated that there are far more nuclear weapons available to Kim, Kim Jong-un than we'd previously thought. Uh, President Trump followed up with a response that surprised a lot of observers with its bellicosity. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. He has been very threatening uh, beyond a normal statement. And as I said, they will be met with fire fury, and frankly, power, the likes of which this world has never seen before. This is the week that Donald Trump is supposed to be vacationing in Bedminster, right? And 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 laying off. You know, my question is, and Mark, maybe you can, uh, you're, you're the expert here. My question is, Bill Clinton, in one of the unsatisfying rounds of negotiation with North Korea, made a statement, it wasn't quite as bellicose, but he... He basically threatened uh, war on North Korea if they crossed certain lines. We, we've we've been in this drama before. How new is uh, how new and unprecedented is Trump's level of rhetoric? Well, I think he is um, uh, a little more blunt and is given to the theatrical, as we know. So, in that sense, um, you know, his comments were uh, unique. Uh, but accustomed as we are to Trump shooting his mouth off about things. I actually think what we're witnessing here from the American side is a uh, fairly coordinated effort to move the North Korean problem off of the dime. Because no one's mentioned it, but a few weeks ago, Secretary of State Tillerson uh, floated uh, the possibility of direct negotiations with Pyongyang. Um, and now we have Trump uh, you know, making his threats. I think it's a carrot and stick thing, and I think it's very calculated, um, and it remains to be seen whether anything decent will come of it. Well, do you think we're heading to war? I don't, and I don't because I think, most importantly, war would be so catastrophic to North Korea. Uh, so I think it's a fair bet that uh, that they wouldn't push things to that limit, and I also think it's really smart uh, to open the door to a um, you know a more peaceful resolution of the standoff. I have a step back question mark for you, which is what has changed in our understanding of the situation from when you uh, were reporting earlier this year and from when our cover story, uh, July August cover story, was published. Well, since I wrote that story, uh, North Korea has demonstrated success with an ICBM beyond anything they'd been able to do before. Uh, and I think most national security estimates in the month or two since have been bumped up so that the estimate now of when Pyongyang would have an ICBM with a nuke on it um, uh, ready for use has been shortened. The time has been shortened from like four years 
to now one year. In fact, I think I was reading today some the new Japanese analysis is that they may already have a a nuke that'll fit an ICBM. Whether it can survive the reentry is another question. But clearly, they've demonstrated that they're a lot closer to having this capability than we believed when I wrote that piece just a few months ago. And have any of the you laid out four scenarios in the story uh, for how we could deal with North Korea prevention, turning the screws, decapitation of the Kim Jong-un regime and acceptance that North Korea is becoming a nuclear power. Have any of the odds tilted in favor of any of those scenarios since you wrote the story? I don't think so. I think that the, the heat has been turned up on the whole question, but the harsh facts of the situation haven't really changed. And uh, the consequences of any kind of military attack on North Korea haven't changed. So, um, you know, I think it's just coming to a head is all. Do you think, uh, Mark, that America is ready for a war with North Korea if it should come? No. I mean, I don't think any country or any people in the world are ready for a nuclear conflict. Uh, In fact, this is something that scares me about what's going on. Uh, I think when we listen to Kim Jong-un and now Donald Trump uh, making these threats uh, back and forth, what we're talking about is nuclear war. And I think it's useful to recall that uh, through most of my lifetime, uh, through all of my lifetime, the primary um, goal in international affairs has been to prevent the use of nuclear weapons. And I think here we're actually talking about a nuclear war. And frankly, I don't think any society um, is is ready for a nuclear war. I don't think, you know, the United States would be hit by nuclear weapons at this point, but we have lots of troops in Guam and in South Korea, uh, the South Korean people, the Japanese people, the, the level of death and destruction would be unprecedented in human history. And I don't think anybody's ready for that. Why Guam? Well, because Guam is close enough to be within range of uh, North Korea's missiles, and we have major military installations. The the reason I ask that is the threat against Guam would provoke a catastrophic U.S. response, but Guam, it it doesn't exactly frighten Americans in the same way that talking about Los Angeles or San Francisco. It it just seems like, why why if he's going to threaten the U.S. with with a potential nuclear attack, would he, or, or a potential attack, would he limit himself to a place that would provoke a, a huge U.S. response, but wouldn't be hugely damaging to the U.S.? Because I think he's just looking for places where there are Americans. And, you know, if he had the capability to hit Los Angeles, he'd be saying Los Angeles. I agree with you. I think, you know, any strike against um, an American base in that part of the world, and not to mention a strike against Japan or Seoul, uh, would prompt a, an overwhelming American response. So that's why I think it's unlikely that North Korea would launch that kind of first attack, no matter what they say. Um, but, you know, I think that's the reason why he chooses Guam. Mark, the situation sounds as unstable as it ever has been. You don't sound notably more panicked. The the level, uh, the flurry of attention that we're seeing now on the internet and in the media 
I'm not hearing that in, in your voice. You ended your story on this interesting note. You said there's no sign of panic in Seoul. You cited Matoko Rich or the New York Times who was talking about walking around in the city uh, in South Korea, fi- finding residents busy with their normal lives, eating at restaurants. This morning, um, Elise Hu, NPR's uh, South Korea correspondent, said, because this is a question I get a lot, she tweeted, yep, all common Seoul. This summer, a trend is handheld battery-powered fans, people walking around fanning themselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, the, the, the answer to your question, Matt, is that I don't think many people in the United States follow affairs in Asia very closely. But, you know, the, they will when, when things heat up and it makes the front page of the newspaper. But, um, or it makes the, more importantly, I guess, the nightly news or the, you know, internet, uh, you know, um, hits or whatever you call them. But uh, the truth is that this situation has existed for decades. Uh, The capability that North Korea has to wreak havoc in South Korea um, has existed for generations. And I think there's a logic to it that those of us who have paid attention for a longer time understand and are are, um, more inclined to believe that logic dictates against an all-out conflict. Uh, so, you know, the fact that it's heated up right now, as I said, has focused a lot of people's attention on it. But I don't believe that the, uh, other than North Korea's reach, uh, nothing much has changed. North Korea has required a lot of diplomatic attention. Uh, we have to be not only attuned to the signals that the U.S. is sending diplomatically to the country itself, but to all of our allies in the region and around the world. Uh, what's your sense of how the uh, the State Department is engaging now? What's the sense of the back and forth with our allies um, and with other actors in the region? Well, I hope uh, that there's a considerable amount of work going on because certainly President Moon Jae-in of South Korea um, has indicated that he would like to, uh, you know, reopen negotiations with North Korea and would like to back away from the um, uh, brinksmanship here. Uh, I think that you know Japan um, has, I think, become more concerned. Um, and I, you've just read, I think, today that uh, uh, there are um, leaders in Japan calling for, you know, beefing up their defenses and even possibly developing uh, a nuclear arsenal of their own. Um, you know, we, we've been reading about the uh, efforts that the United States has been making with uh, President Xi Jinping in uh, China to try to get China more engaged in uh, pressuring North Korea. And in fact, that those have yielded some success with the uh, UN sanctions that passed, uh, I believe, last week. Uh, So I think there's a, you know, this is a big concern. And I I expect that, you know, a lot more is at stake here than just, you know, uh, the leaders in Washington and Pyongyang. Can I, let me ask you this, uh, Mark, Donald Trump seems to have just set a red line. Am I mistaken? Well, Jeff, he he has, uh, and he did actually months ago when he said he would not allow North Korea to develop this nuclear-tipped ICBM. So is this just a is this what we saw this week? Just a rhetorically embellished version of the the red line that he already set. Yes, although I do think he's backed off it a little bit. Um, you know, he was responding, I believe, to the similar you know 
bellicose rhetoric coming from Pyongyang in a way that most American presidents uh, would not, and in fact, a way, a way that President Obama deliberately uh, refused to uh, respond to. But he's, you know, I think by offering to negotiate with North Korea, the, the United States has taken a step back from the red line that Trump established uh, earlier this year. I think he's, as I said, I think his statements, which sounded off the cuff, are part of a calculated carrot and stick strategy. Uh, and I hope it works. Who do you think is making our North Korea policy now? My guess is that General McMaster is the architect of it. Do you think that, that they have calibrated uh, the way I think you calibrated in your article, the fact that the North Korean leadership might be irrational? Sure. I think that they have, but I think they also understand, uh, as I tried to point out in the piece, that as nutty as uh, Pyongyang seems to be, uh, Kim Jong-un shows no signs of being suicidal. So I think a part of that strategy would be to try to convince Kim Jong-un that Trump is just crazy enough that he might um, attack them militarily and damn be you know the consequences be damned and as terrifying as that is to contemplate i think it probably is worthwhile for pyongyang to believe that that might happen one of the criticisms of president obama was that he didn't scare anyone because they assumed a level of rationality adversaries assumed a level of rationality on his part uh and he would frequently tell the world what he wouldn't do rather than what he would do mm-hmm. I, I know how you feel about president trump generally is there some utility here to uh, to the crazy Nixon approach uh, to, to foreign policy? Do you think that a North Korean leader actually says, hmm, maybe this guy is crazy as I am? I think there's something to that, Jeff, and, and that may be somewhat useful. I think the, the usefulness of it, frankly, is uh, diminished because Trump says so many stupid things. Uh, and he says <laughs> things that turn out not to be true. And so he has you know, done a great deal to diminish the um, clout of his office over right. the first six months. But the, the, the pure strategy itself does, um, I think you could argue that there, there uh, are legitimate reasons for um, being this confrontational. And I'd add one more thing. I think it is important, again, to note that we're not talking about a conventional conflict here. And I think it's really important to draw the line, at least mentally, between what we're talking about when we're talking about going to war in Syria or going to war in Afghanistan or, you know, another country where nuclear arms are not on the table. This is a potential nuclear uh, exchange. And the consequences of that are so unthinkably huge that, to me, it's frightening that we're even having this conversation. Just to be clear, you think there's little chance that we could prevent uh, a, an escalatory cycle from from taking place if there was a conventional uh, conflict, if, if, we, if we wound up in a kind of skirmish of some sort with the North Koreans? Yes, I don't think that we can um, beyond a certain limit. I'm not talking about, you know, the little exchanges of fire in the demilitarized zone or maybe a little, you know, a confrontation in the in the seas. Uh, any sort of major conventional um, attack on North Korea or, or by North Korea and South Korea, I think, would rapidly escalate. And, and that's because the conventional capabilities 
of North Korea alone are capable of wreaking such havoc on Seoul uh, and, frankly, on American bases within reach that the, uh, the, co- the cost of any kind of military action like that would rapidly become so high it would be unacceptable and I think it would just spiral out of control. So North Korea is already capable of a lot of conventional damage. I'm curious about on its path to being a quote-unquote full-fledged nuclear power, what's next? What are the next dominoes that uh, that observers are watching for to tell the extent of, of North Korea's capabilities? Well, two things. You know, one is their attitude. And I think if they were, for instance, to detonate another nuclear bomb, um, you know, that would be an indication of, uh, you know, their um, determination to proceed. And also these um, missile launches. I think they are um, rapidly making progress and they are definitely tapping at the edge of the uh, limit that um, the United States and more recently the Trump administration has set. So they're, you know, they're kind of forcing the issue. So I would look for those kind of things uh, happening on the negative side. On the positive side, you know, I think, for instance, I think that UN, um, those UN sanctions last week were really helpful. Uh, And I think that uh, if China were to um, step up a little bit, uh, you know, that we could see some movement in efforts toward opening negotiations with Pyongyang. You know, I think this is all under the rubric of what I called acceptance. If if we accept, you know, that they are going to eventually have these weapons, uh, I think that, you know, we need to establish a context where they might back away from their use. The only other thing that I would ask is, of the other options, what would indicate that we are that we are stepping towards either turning the screws or decapitation beyond the rhetoric of President Trump? Are there actions that you would look to that would indicate, oh, no, this is taking a turn in another direction? No, I I think by definition, if the United States were going to take military action, that they would work very hard not to telegraph it in any way. Um, I think tensions are are pretty much at their, you know, at that point right now. Um, the United States is certainly capable at any time of, uh, as is South Korea, of launching an attack of some kind on North Korea. I think that it won't happen, though. Uh, and it won't happen because the consequences would be too um, stark, too terrible. Mark, I'm going to ask you to take a big guess here. But how does this drama end? I think it ends, Jeff, anticlimactically, I hope, anyway. <laughs> and I think, and I genuinely think it will, because, again, I think the reality of conflict is so stark and horrible uh, on the Korean Peninsula and it's in the area that it won't happen. Uh, and, I, and I think that, that that is going to mean uh, the United States and South Korea are going to have to live with a nuclear-armed uh, ICBM-equipped North Korea, because I don't think that can be prevented. Uh, so I think if we simply take a deep breath mm-hmm. and realize that it really does not substantially alter the uh, standoff there when that happens, it, it opens the door, I think, to more uh, avenues of, of uh, cooperating with uh, North Korea on some things and possibly creating a context where 
you know, this whole crisis can ease. These sorts of regimes, these terrible regimes like the one we see in North Korea, they don't last forever. How long do you give this regime? Boy, Jeff, it's like hard to predict. <laughs> if you would have asked me in the, you know, the end of the 1980s how long Castro would uh, stay in power in Cuba, I would have said I'd give him a couple months. <laughs> uh, you know, a, a well-run authoritarian uh, society uh, can exist for a long, long time. And, you know, I think a lot of people, for instance, in Iran are, are, are you know, hate their government and, and they hate the, the way their society is run. But I don't predict there's going to be substantial change there anytime soon. And yet, having said that, it could happen next week. Because I think by their nature, you know, these kinds of uh, coups or radical changes happen by surprise. It certainly that was true of the Iranian revolution in, in the 1970s. So it could last for our lifetimes and beyond, or it could be, uh, you know, overthrown within the next two years. Who knows? Mark, talking with you is oddly calming. It's like, <laughs> well, let's not overstate le- it. Learning to live with a, a state of perennial, but not particularly heightened uh, eternal panic. I, I dissent from Matt's view. Of this. <laughs> I enjoy our conversation, but I'm dissenting. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Thank you very much, Thanks, Mark. Mark. Thank you. Sure, my pleasure. This special bonus episode of Radio Atlantic was produced and edited by Kevin Townsend. Thanks, as always, to my co-host, Jeffrey Goldberg, and to Mark Bowden for his insight and level-headedness. I will be saying the serenity prayer after that conversation. The theme music for our podcast is by the one and only John Batiste, and you'll hear it in full if you tune in for our episodes that drop every Friday. This coming Friday, Jeff and I will once again be joined by our co-host, Alex Wagner. Our guest this week is Kurt Anderson, the author of our September cover story, tracing a 500-year history of how America lost its mind. Subscribe to Radio Atlantic in your favorite podcast app. And as always, you can find us at theatlantic.com slash radio and facebook.com slash radioatlantic. Thank you once again for listening, and we'll catch you again on Friday. <laughs>